Good morning, everyone. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come before you again with an open mind and hopefully an open heart, helping, asking you to help us to better understand chapters 6 and 7 of the Gospel of John. Probably the most important chapters in the entire Gospel. Help us then to really understand and to give our minds and our hearts to you so that you inspire us into really opening ourselves up to what you want us to hear. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Uh, Before we begin, uh, I've been asked several times now this morning, there will be a class next week, which is the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday. I understand that because of the distribution of ashes and so forth, the liturgy over in the church might take a little bit longer, so we'll just wait for you. Uh, Ten or fifteen minutes, that is. Uh, (laughs) Um, But there will be a class, so if anyone is not here and asks you, there will be a class next week. I don't see any reason why. And we will allow all of you to come in with dirty foreheads. (laughs) All right. Today we are getting into some deep theology. Chapter 6 and 7, primarily 6, is probably the most important of the important chapters of the entire gospel. Because it brings out one of the chief uh, innovations, you might say, that Jesus offers and implements into Christianity. Let me go back a little bit. This chapter centers around uh, the idea of the bread of life. And you've all read and heard that story, I'm sure, many, many times, how Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. All right. But... Sometimes we have a habit of when we hear something over and over and over, we say, ho, hum, and let it go at that. You know, it kind of slips right over the mind as well as the heart. But I want you to kind of think a little bit more about this particular reading today because there are so many aspects of it that most people don't think about. First of all, the idea of bread. It goes back in many respects to the the book of Exodus, where the Jews who have escaped, you might say, uh, slavery in Egypt, are now wandering the desert, in the desert, And they wandered for nearly 40 years. Have you ever wondered why they were wandering for 40 years? You know, they knew exactly where they were going or where they were headed. They had uh, Abraham 
and his family, not Abraham, I'm sorry, Jacob and his family had traveled back and forth two or three times at the beginning of uh, the entrance of the Jewish people into Egypt. So, uh, and you can practically walk, well, it might be a little bit of a uh, hike, but from Egypt to uh, Jerusalem just by walking along the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. Might take you a couple of weeks, but that would be a nice hike. So, why would they were wandering in full for 40 years? It is because they were so disobedient, so grumbling and griping, and then the major factor, of course, uh, was the molten calf situation where they worshipped the molten calf and they wanted something physical to worship um, instead of just this mystical God that um, Moses was telling them about. Okay? So while God punished them uh, for that particular event by saying that those people who were involved in the crafting and the engraving and so forth of this uh, molten calf that they were worshipping would not enter the promised land. Now, he wasn't going to just kill them off, but he made them wander for 40 years so that almost all of the elderly people that were involved in that died off Okay, during that time period. And it was only the young, the innocent, etc., who actually came into the promised land. Uh, that's why it was for 40 years. Now, again, 40 is not a precise figure in Old Testament writings. 40 is a convenience figure because there were no calendars kept in those days for personal events. There were records kept from one king to another or from one major battle to another or one major event of some kind. But for personal use, there weren't any calendars. And besides, calendars changed so often uh, that who would recognize what calendar was used at that time? So 40 was a convenient way of saying a long but imprecise time but we know it was a long period of time. Okay, during that time, the provisions that they brought with them from Egypt had run out long ago. And they didn't constantly move around. They in, uh, settled down in various places, one of them in Beersheba, uh, for a number of years, Then they had to. They had to pasture their flocks because that was a source of food. They had to grow wheat and so because that was the food for the flocks, etc., uh, and the animals. So they had to settle down and partake of the land. But after a while, they started grumbling and griping again about the wretched food that they were eating and the drinking and so forth. Um, and so... Moses prayed to God to help him feed these people. And so God allowed manna, which was sort of a, um, well, 
scientists tell us it was a, a lichen or a growth that was edible and it fell from heaven. Okay. And they were to collect this on a daily basis except for uh, the last, the sixth day of the week when they were to collect a double amount which would then last them for the Sabbath because they were not permitted to work on the Sabbath and collecting this would have been a work. So they were told to harvest it on a daily basis except for the sixth day and then they were to harvest a double amount uh, for carrying over the Sabbath. All right, And if they didn't eat all of it, it would decay almost immediately. Anyways, the whole idea of bread in this came, this way became a source of life for them. And bread in the Jewish uh, mind and heart, even up to today, bread is a sign of life. When a not so much here in the West Coast, but in the Mideast and the East Coast, the custom is if a Jewish person is invited to another person, Jewish person's home for the first time or into a new home for the first time, the proper gift is a loaf of bread, a special kind of bread, uh, salt rising, not yeast rising. Uh, but that is the custom of the time because... Bread was the source of life. All right. Now, if you recall part of the wandering in the, the desert and so forth, and prior to that, God instructed Moses to kill a lamb and have each family kill a lamb and sacrifice that on the night before they left the night before the Passover, you might say, or that was the Passover, the first one, all right? And that became a, a source, you might say, representing the sharing of God, the sharing of the gifts of God, all right? And the Lamb itself became the idea of uh, God's remission of their sins, etc., and they were told then that that would be a annual uh, requirement. And that became uh, the Seder uh, service of the Jewish people on an annual basis. Okay. Now, I want to go through all of that rather quickly. I'm sure you, most of you already know that. But there is a connection here. And that's why it is important that you understand the background. Uh, okay. <laughs> I thought that was the pearly music from, you know. <laughs> background music. Background music, yes. Yeah, okay. There is a connection here that I, I want to bring out in a few minutes. Okay. The idea of now in the gospel here that we're talking about, chapter 6, it goes through the story of the multiplication of the loaves and fish. Now, that is one of the few stories that's in all four Gospels. In fact, one of the other Gospels has it there twice. 
they're feeding 5,000 in one event and 4,000 in another. Whether that actually happened twice or whether it was just two different versions, uh, that's sort of uh, an unsubtle debate. But the event of the multiplication of the loaves and fish is something that's in all four Gospels. And you've heard that many, many times, like I've said, but sometimes it kind of goes over because you, oh, oh, here we go again, you know. But there are a few things in this story, and then the teaching that came uh, to the apostles from Christ directly afterwards is what is really most important. Within the story itself, the multiplication of the bread, the loaves of bread, is somewhat akin to the changing of the water into the wine at the wedding ceremony back in chapter 4. Remember, Christ changed six great water jars into the better wine that was used for the wedding. And in this story, he's changing uh, six or seven, whatever it is, loaves of bread into enough to feed hundreds, if not thousands. That number is a little bit skeptical, uh, questionable, but what difference does it make? The point is there were a large number of people, and to feed them with seven loaves is a miracle under any circumstances, okay? But when they collected all the fragments to make sure there was not, nothing uh, uh, left over improperly, and it was taken care of, uh, they filled 12 baskets, okay? Again, the abundance here is in recognition of God's abundant love. The abundance of wine is the same idea. It's in recognition of God's abundant love of mankind and how God wishes to take care of his followers, those who are faithful to him. The story seems to uh, end rather abruptly. They collect the fragments left over. There's 12 baskets, and sort of that's it. Uh, You ever wonder why? Again, we have to remember, why is this gospel being written? It is not a chronological story. In fact, the author uh, of this book here goes into some detail trying to explain that some people think chapters 5 and 6 should be reversed. 5 and 6, not 6 and 7. All right. Uh, Because of Jesus going up from Jerusalem and then in the next place he's going down to someplace else. That's beside the point. As I've said before, the authors of this gospel are not taking chronological events, one that happens right after the other. They're taking isolated events in order to bring out certain teachings. And all of these teachings sort of culminate into or point to the fact that Jesus is God 
and he is here out of love to save mankind. And if you kind of keep that in mind, it makes a little more sense than trying to figure out, well, why did he go down here and then he's up here and then he's across the river or the lake or whatever? Um, speaking of across the lake, uh, as we go on into the next section of the Jesus walking on the water, and I'm going to come back to this. Don't think I'm just dropping it there. Uh, but the next section is Jesus walking on water. Now, uh, this is totally unrelated, you might say, to the fact of the multiplication of the loaves and fish. Why? Again, it is to prove to the people who are reading this, particularly in the first centuries and immediately after, again that Jesus was God. Something that I haven't brought out before, but uh, you have to understand is that in the latter part of the first century A.D., there were a number of heresies. Heresies, of course, are uh, wrongful teachings about God in some respect. That's a very broad brush or definition. But these were heresies that came from not people who were trying to twist things into their own ways, but people who had misunderstood and were sincere, but totally wrong in church uh, teaching and in church doctrine as it was in those days. All right. So there was a number of heresies and some of the Arian, the Arian, heres, Arian heresy was probably the most dominant at that time period. And it recognized Jesus as God, but didn't recognize him as human. And that, of course, was totally wrong because, as we have said all along, Jesus was always God and always human at the same time. Okay. Uh, that's called the hypostatic union, in case anybody wants to look it up. All right. The idea of God maintaining two natures at the same time, both equal um, and moving together. Right. Hypostatic union. The heresies that uh, sprung up in the latter part of the first century and existed off and on uh, for several centuries. Uh, later on, even at the time of St. Dominic in the 10th and 11th century, the Albigensian heresy was extremely rampant, all right? And, of course, we have the schism of the 10th or 11th century, really, between the East and the West. But that is one of the things in the back of the minds of the people who wrote this gospel. They have to constantly uh, remind you that it is written to prove that Jesus is God. And so that's why we have this walking on the water scene. It's a short one, but it's interesting in a way. And I 
sort of got off onto this by talking about uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting that it goes by several different names. The Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, or the Lake of Tiberias, Lake Genezareb, and probably a few others. It is probably about the size of Lake Tahoe or smaller, certainly not larger. The one difference is that it is fairly shallow. And when a lake is shallow, a large lake is shallow, uh, when a wind comes up, it can really do havoc uh, by creating a lot of waves and so forth. All right. So that is one of the parts of this story here on the uh, Jesus walking on the water. Remember, he sends off his uh, apostles into a boat and he stays behind uh, to pray. And in the midst of the evening... Uh, this wind storm comes up and starts really uh, wrecking havoc with the little boat that they're in. And they're extremely fearful, thinking they're all going to capsize or drown or whatever. And they catch sight of Jesus walking on the water. Again, it's a story to prove that Jesus is God. All right. And as he steps into the boat, uh, to join them, uh, the winds and so forth calm down. There are different versions of this. In one of the other Gospels, this story happens towards uh, the end of the Gospel, after the resurrection. And uh, Peter, you know, <laughs> Peter with the, the big mouth always says, Well, Lord, if it's really you... You know, let me come and walk on the water too. Uh, uh, and in another uh, episode, there's, you know, another little difference and so forth. It really doesn't make too much difference. Again, if you go back to the idea that the gospel in this case is written with one of the ob objectives is to constantly remind you that Jesus is God. Okay. And that takes us then into what is probably the most important part of the gospel, the bread of life discourse. Okay. And I would like to get into it, and I'm going to read some of it. I don't particularly care to read because I think in many ways you get more out of my little jabber up here than you do uh, by reading. But the words are important, okay? And that is what I really want to talk about. First of all, on chapter 37, I mean on page 37, uh, chapter 6, right at, at the top, it says, Jesus is telling the apostle now, gather the fragments left over so that nothing will be wasted. And so they collected them and filled 12 wicker baskets. All right. Twelve, again, is one of the three sacred numbers in Jewish culture. Three, seven, and twelve. Twelve is sort of representative of all or everything. Okay? And that's why there were twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 
and 12 apostles and so forth, they represent all mankind. When I go like this, it is in a way to illustrate totality or universal. Have you ever wondered why, when you see pictures of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, why those columns surround the plaza outside the church? The Bernini columns, they were sculptured and designed by uh, Angelo Bernini back in the 16th century. They are to represent Mother Church, the arms of Mother Church. Okay? And they are open to all mankind. No exclusivity as the Jewish people had. You know, you could not be a Jew unless you uh, were circumcised or made a commitment and so forth and so on. Christianity is open to all mankind. And those columns represent um, Mother Church, you might say, with her arms open to all mankind. Okay. The idea of 12 represents the same kind of thing. Okay. Let's go on to page 38. The Bread of Life Discourse. It says, the, crowd, the next day the crowd that remained across the sea saw that there was, had been only one boat there, that Jesus had not gone along with his disciples in the boat, but only his disciples had left. Other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they had eaten the bread when the Lord gave thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into boats and came to Capernaum, or Capernaum. Makes no difference how you pronounce it. It's not there anymore anyways. Again, that lake is rather small, and you can practically see all of the shores. Uh, like I said, it's smaller, a little smaller than Lake Tahoe is, and so you get some idea. Um, but it is in flat land, not in the mountains like Tahoe. All right, so you can see rather clearly most of the lake from any one particular place, and that's why they could see where boats were going to and coming from. And when they found him across the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you get here? More importantly, how did you get here? Okay. And Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen, I say to you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, signs that pointed to him as God, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... The Father, God, has set his seal. And so they said, well, what can we do to accomplish the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one 
he sent. Okay. Now, I don't know whether you underlined that particular phrase, the one he sent, or the one who was sent uh, in one of the previous chapters. But underline it now, because it will come up several times in the rest of this gospel. The one who was sent. In fact, I have a book up here with that title. Christ, the one sent. And be careful how you spell sent, not C-E-N-T. All right. But the one sent by the Father. All right. Very, very good book. All right. So they said to him, what sign can you do that we may see and believe in you? What can you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Well, they recognized, or at least originally they recognized, that that bread came from God. But over a period of time, remember, the people distanced themselves from any direct relationship with God. And they claimed Moses as their intermediary. This goes back to uh, Exodus chapter 18. Okay. Uh, where Moses goes up in the mountains and to, to get the Ten Commandments and there's smoke and fire and all of that. And these people are so frightened by all of this. When he comes down, they say, you be our intermediary. We don't want to get too close and involved in all of that. And that became a cultural thing, unfortunately. Their fear of a direct connection or direct relationship with God. All right. And so they thought, after a period of time, that it was Moses who gave them this manna in the desert while they were wandering. And they never thought about the fact that it came from the sky, which, of course, Moses couldn't have anything to do with that. You know, it's like saying that uh, rain comes from uh, the person on the television that uh, talks about it. Okay. No. Rain comes as a part of nature, which is a form of God in action. Okay. And the matter was the same way. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to them. He says, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And now this is important. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And I'm emphasizing that is because who or what came down from heaven to give life to the world? Christ himself. Yes. All right. And so when we talk about the bread later being the body and blood of Christ, that follows this particular statement. 
and puts it into a little bit clearer understanding. For the bread of God is not bread in the form of a loaf that we normally think of, but it is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, which is God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. So they still don't get it. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And whoever thirsts in me will, I mean, whoever believes in me will never thirst. Now, he's speaking on a spiritual level. They don't see that. They think it's still in human level. And for some reason or other, you know, they're just not getting it. But then again, you can't be too hard on these people because most of them weren't that well educated. The temple rulers, yes, they should have known better. But not the every everyday person. I told you that although you have seen me, you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me. But you have to come to him in faith, believing in him. And then, when you finally get that belief in your mind and your heart, then you've got to follow through with your speech and your actions. They all go together. I will not reject anyone who comes to me because I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. There it is again. And this is the will of the one who sent me. A third time. That I should not lose anything or anyone of what he gave me, but that I should raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I shall raise him on the last day. Now, the word believe in this case implies that you not only believe, but you follow through with your actions. Ah, the Jews murmured about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, hmm, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? Then how can he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me will draw him, and I will raise him on the last day. For it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. You see, too many people give credit to these the ignorance of these people. And you can't do that because for hundreds of years, the prophets 
have been talking about the one who was promised to Moses will be coming and this is what he will be doing and so forth and so on. So they should have been aware of this. And yet what they did was they took that whole idea and changed it around, that is the temple rulers did, to suit themselves and their agenda. And their agenda primarily was to get rid of the Romans and become a self-sustaining sovereign country again, which they had not been for well over 500 years, ever since the Babylonian captivity. They were never um, sovereign rulers of themselves. And so they took the whole idea of a Messiah that was going to come and teach them and feed them, etc., and twist it around to become a knight in shining armor or a prince on a, on a white horse and get rid of the Romans. Uh, and that is not what Jesus had in mind. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. For whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I am him. Now, you can't blame the average person too much for not accepting this. Because Moses decreed that eating the flesh of certain animals and drinking the blood of any animal would cause you a lot of problems, okay? And therefore it became uh, a forbidden thing to do. And the cultural thing over a period of time came to understand that if you ate that food or drank the blood of animals, you would become like that animal because blood carries life, but it also carries uh germs and all kinds of other things. But Jesus takes that idea of becoming like the animal and turns it around into a good thing because what he wants us to do is to eat his flesh and drink his blood in the form of the consecrated blood, bread and wine so that we do become like him. You get the picture? He takes something that was a cultural no-no and turns it around and turns the, the medium around as well and gives it to us because what would our faith today be like without the Eucharist? 
What would our Mass be like today without the Eucharist? Some bad singing and a lot of prayers? I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, but sometimes when you sit too close to the, to the uh, choir, boy. Especially if you know anything about music. Anyways, don't tell anybody that's in the choir that I said that. <laughs> okay. But our faith requires, human nature requires something to be touched and felt and seen in order to be acceptable. If we go simply on spiritual things throughout our life, they seem to kind of drift off after a while and we lose sight of them. But when we have the Eucharist in front of us on a daily basis or weekly basis, whatever, we are totally reminded of who Jesus is and what he did for us. See the connection? It all comes back to what we have today. Yes, Jack? Yes, yes. All right. Jack just pointed out the fact that this gospel emphasizes the Jews as if they are the enemy. Okay? You got to remember that this was written after a long period of persecutions which were against the Christians, which was begun, begun by the Jews. And so now they are referring, the author is referring to those people who remained steadfast Orthodox Jews as if they were the enemy. The Jews. Okay. Now, it's interesting, as you just pointed out, uh, that they're all Jews. You know? They're all Jews at this time. Except a few, you know, that came in from other uh, areas. Um, but the Jews is actually in reference to the temple rulers who steadfast refused to accept anything uh, in the teachings of Christ or the apostles. Yeah. Does that make sense? Howard? In, in, you mean in the one, the one cent? Yeah, saying that, you know, I am the, uh, this is my uh, body and this is my blood. You know, we have the life of me. More or less, you need to tell three times here that something big. Yes. In, in Jewish writing of this time period, and even before, Repetition was the way of making a, a point. Uh, you know, in writing, Jewish writing, 
they had no way to underline or highlight as we would today. Uh, they did not use uh, capital letters and quotation marks and that kind of thing. So repetition was probably the most uh, convenient and commonly used way to make a point. Okay. But certain things, for example, the I am statement, that has a slightly different connotation. All right. And the one who sent me or the one sent, um, that again is always referring to the fact that Jesus came from God and is God, as the prologue of this gospel tells us. Let's go over to the top of page 41 here. Then many of the disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life while the flesh is of no avail. In other words, it's saying here that your spiritual life, your soul, and its conditions are far, far more important than the body. And Jesus is constantly pointing his teachings towards the conditions of your soul. Not the body. And yet these people constantly forget that or they have never really understood uh, the whole concept of the spirit, the spirit within us, which is the soul. Even though that was part of their culture. You can go back to a lot of the Psalms and the prophets who talked about the salvation of <coughs> Of the soul. Excuse me, my voice is. Well, there's another little aspect of this statement here. It is the spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. I want to digress for just a moment. You've often heard uh, throughout the last ten or years or so, about cloning and the possibility that in time to come, mankind will be able to clone the human body. Well, if you apply this statement to it, you might be able to clone, or scientists might be able to clone the human body, but that doesn't mean that that body will have human life in it. Okay? Because it is the spirit, the soul, that really is the essence of humanity and what gives life to your body. And without that, you will have an empty body. Alright? And that is what death is all about. So the idea of human cloning is a dangerous thing. 
Because, yeah, they might be able to clone the body, but not the soul, because that comes strictly from God. And since cloning would be obviously something apart from God, and contrary to God, God's not going to put a spirit or a soul into that body. So you'd really have a problem, wouldn't you? That's enough of that. Okay. Says, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. See the connection? The Father is always the center point of our spiritual relationship with God. All prayers, all actions are either meant to honor the Father through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, or through the saints, or through the church, but ultimately to the Father. And so that is why he says this, and that's, of course, what it means. For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. So as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former ways of life and no longer accompanied him. And so Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? And Peter answers, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. I think that's very important. And I used it one time when a person came to me and implied that he was going to leave the Catholic Church. In fact, he was going to leave the church altogether because he was highly offended uh, by a given priest. And I said, well, that's unfortunate that a priest would say or do something that would cause you to want to leave the church altogether. But I said, to whom would you go? And he stopped, you know, sort of suddenly, because he had really not thought about it. And I gave him this particular quotation right here. And I said, think about it a little bit more. And do some praying before you make a decision. And he came to me later and he said, I've changed my mind. Yeah. Dick? Yes, uh, all the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. Yeah, the disciples were any and all that followed Christ. And some of those departed also because they were not 
totally committed. You have to be totally committed to really understand and accept the whole idea of the Eucharist being the body and blood of Christ. But look at it another way. I'm sure that all of you have had doubts at one time or another when the priest holds up the chalice and the host or the bread after the consecration, you know, and offers it to the Father. And you often wonder, you know, this would be human nature. Is this really God? And when you receive the host in Holy Communion and drink from the cup, have you ever really thought to yourself, is this really God? Think about the multiplication of the loaves and the multiplication of the water and the wine. Do you really believe those stories? Isn't it easier or just as easy to change bread into his flesh and blood and wine into his blood as it is to change six water jars of uh, into six water jars of wine and seven or whatever loaves of bread into enough to feed hundreds, if not thousands. Therefore, why is it so difficult to understand that this is God himself in the form of bread and wine? And when you receive it, do you actually just pop it in your mouth and kind of forget it? I would recommend that when you receive the bread, the host, stop just for a second and look at it and say, welcome, Jesus, or some words of that kind. Because you are welcoming, welcoming him into your body, into your mind and heart and soul. If you received some notable friend or, I don't want to say politician, <laughs> but some notable person, you know, the Pope, for example, to your home, would you just open the door and let him come in and, you know, uh, sort of ignore him and, you know, just say, sit over there? No, you'd kind of go out of your way to welcome him and offer your hospitality, and so forth and so on. Why do you not do it when you receive communion? Well, isn't this where your faith comes into it? Yes, it should. It That's should. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. This is where your faith should respond and say, Welcome, Jesus, or welcome, my God, or any words of, of that kind which would imply that you recognize that what you are receiving or have received is God himself under the appearances of bread and wine. What would your faith be like if you didn't have that opportunity? Yeah. 
empty. So that is a whole idea of what this chapter is all about. There's so much more here that we could spend quite a time on just talking about um, chapter 6 and its meanings. But unfortunately, we have to go on. I want to go on to chapter 7. The Feast of Tabernacles. Anybody know what another word or name for the Feast of Tabernacles is? Well, yes, called it the Feast of Booths, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Feast of Tents, whatever. The word comes, the word tabernacles comes from the idea of tents. Going back to the story of the Jews wandering in the desert again. This was the time when God told Moses to build an ark, which became the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a glorified fancy box, you might say, fairly large, uh, with all kinds of fancy trimmings and special wood, etc., etc., to contain the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. It was also to contain the staff by which Moses separated the water so that uh, the Jews could walk across uh, the sea on dry land, and it contained a couple jars of the manna as represent, excuse me, representing the gift uh, that God gave to sustain the people while they were wandering in the desert. All right, this became uh, a symbol of God, and over a period of time, it was looked upon almost as if it were God Himself. Well, Moses, out of great reverence, because this box was so large and it was so important uh, that he could not keep it in his own private tent, he wanted to make it available for everybody. So he built a tent of animal skins, etc., over it. And it was maintained in this tent uh, for many, many years. And when they would move from one uh, camp to another, the tent would be moved in the same way. Okay. The whole idea of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a harvest feast, where people would leave their homes and go out into the fields and harvest, and sometimes they would be gone for a long period of time, so they would build tents for themselves and stay in those tents while the harvest was going on. Later on, when they developed cities and so forth, uh, that sort of disappeared in a way, but once a year on the Feast of Tabernacles, they would again build little huts or some kind of tent for themselves in order to stay in them for seven days. Uh, they could come out, of course, but it was this was a way of celebrating this particular uh, 
Today we call that the beginning of Rosh Hashanah. Actually, that's an improper way of pronouncing. It should be Rosh Hashanah. But most people say Rosh Hashanah, including the Jewish people. All right. And it is a seven-day feast beginning in the Jewish uh, month of Tishri, the 15th day of the month of Tishri. And because of the Jewish calendar, that is sort of a slightly uh, movable time, depending on uh, the lunar uh, year. Okay, so it really comes around the middle, sometime after the middle of September and before the middle of October. It's a eight-day uh, period of celebration. The last day is the greatest and the most solemn day, and that is the Feast of Yom Kippur. Okay. That gives you a little bit, a bit of background here while we're going on here. It says, When the feast was half over, Jesus went up into the temple area and began to teach. The Jews, again, the Jews, were amazed and said, How does he know scripture without having studied? And Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but is from the one who sent me. There it is again. Whoever chooses to do his will shall know whether my teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But whoever seeks the glory of the one who sent him is truthful, and there is no wrong in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps it. So why are you trying to kill me? And the crowds answered, You are possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I performed one work, and all of you are amazed because of it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it came from Moses, but rather from the patriarchs, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So this whole section right here again gets back to the idea of the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath. And as Jesus has said before, and not so much in this gospel, but in one of the others, is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning that the Sabbath was a day set apart from Obviously, manual labor, labor that would tax an individual severely so that he would not have an opportunity to do anything else. And while he is resting, he is asked to give homage and thanks to God for the many blessings that he gave to God. And that is exactly the same thing that we have our Sunday. Sunday is a day not to go shopping or to the mall or to play golf necessarily, but golf can be a day of, is a relaxing thing. The whole idea is doing something different than you do the rest of the week. But the main thing is keeping the Sabbath holy. And one of the ways the church feels that you should do that is by attending Mass. 
says the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring about him, about Jesus, that is, to this effect. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent guards to arrest him. So Jesus said, I will be with you only a little while longer, and then I will go to the one who sent me. It's about the fifth time in this chapter. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, here is the I am series that is beginning. If you count them, I think there will be somewhere between 20 and 30 I am's throughout the rest of this gospel. And I think I gave you the story on behind that. Um, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So the Jews said to one another, where is he going? And we will not find him? Surely he is not going to the dispersion among the Greeks to teach the Greeks, is he? Now, Greeks in this case doesn't mean people of Greek background and nationality. It means uh, Gentiles. Okay? It's all those who are not uh, Jews. Again, he says, you will look for me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day, the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and exclaimed, Let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from him and within him. He said this in reference to the spirit that those who came to believe in him were to receive. And this was, of course, there was no, of course, no spirit because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Is that understood? The spirit, the Holy Spirit that we talk about was not given to anyone that we know of um, until after Christ's death and resurrection because he had not yet been glorified. I got into an argument with a priest one time. Oh, I'm not afraid to challenge. <laughs> he gave a sermon that included the going out of the 72 uh, disciples that Jesus sent out to heal and teach and preach and so forth and, and forgive sin. And I challenged him and I said, no, he didn't give them permission to uh, forget sin. And boy, he came down on me hard. And I said, you've got to remember that that permission was not given until after uh, the resurrection, the evening of the resurrection, when Christ appeared to the apostles in the upper room and said, you know, my peace I give you. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. And whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. But during the time that they were sent out, it was more the, the apostles or the disciples were given powers that affected the physical body. So that those people who were the beneficiaries 
of these miracles uh, would turn to Christ with some sincerity and recognition of the powers that not only Christ but his disciples had. But the idea of forgiving sins at that time, no, that was not uh, given. Just a little aside here. It goes on to quite a, a discussion here on the origins of the Messiah. Uh, I'll just kind of briefly go over that because uh, time is running out here. Some in the crowds who heard these words said, this is truly the prophet. And when he says that the prophet it is in reference to what we've read before in chapter 18 of the book of Exodus where Moses is promised a prophet like himself. And that has come down through Jewish history and was the basis for the idea of the Messiah. Okay. Others said, this is the Messiah. But others said, the Messiah will not come from Galilee, will he? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will be of David's family and come from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? And of course, he did. Jesus did was of the house of David and did uh, or was born in Bethlehem. But these people didn't know it at the time and he wasn't going to explain it. Okay. He felt that he went far enough with all of the miracles that he had worked. And so why bother going any further if they weren't going to accept that? Uh, they asked for a sign and yet all they had to do was look back a little bit on all of the miracles that he had worked, so why ask for another sign? It is, they refused to believe, all right? And in the next chapter, we're going to talk about uh, the blind. And I always say that there's no one more blind than the one who refuses to see. So the guards went to the chief priests, the Pharisees, who asked them, why, do you not, why did you not bring him in? The guards answered, never before has anyone spoken like this one. So the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the, have you, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is a curse. But Nicodemus, here's Nicodemus again. You know, the guy that came to Christ that night. One of their members who had come to him earlier said to them, does our law condemn a person before it first hears him and finds out what he is doing? And they answered and said to him, you are not from Galilee also, are you? And see that no prophet arises from Galilee. But you see, they didn't go very far in their searching. Okay. The, the statement here, does our law condemn a person before it first hears him and finds out what he is doing? The Jewish people had a law among themselves stemming from the commandment, thou shalt not kill, that they were not allowed 
to kill anyone. And yet, they were willing to stone the woman caught in adultery, and they were willing to kill Christ eventually. So you can see they didn't keep their own laws. Any questions? Yes, Howard? You know, I'm 39, but Are you back, still back on 39? <laughs> All right, go ahead. He said as a reference to spirit that those who came to believe in him were to receive. Does that mean receive bodily blood or receive something else? Uh, where are you? Let me. Okay. 45. Okay. Oh, no. Faith. Faith. Yes. Faith. Yeah. The whole idea of living water is the same as faith. Yeah. Well, there were many prophets in the Old Testament. All right. There were 15 literary prophets, that is, prophets who left written instructions or copies of their teachings. All right. Uh, the Messiah, the word itself, is Jewish for the anointed one of God. And of course, therefore, is far above the prophets. The prophets were messengers or representatives of God, yes. Uh, not the guild prophets, though. If you're reading part of the Old Testament, particularly uh, some of the historical uh, books you will find guild prophets those were not representatives of God they were competitors you might say uh, started by Jezebel uh, the wife of Ahab okay thank you yeah okay all right yes Susan okay, early in chapter 7 talking about his brother said to him you know let's go to Judea, and he keeps talking about, they talk about the brothers, we've suddenly switched to brothers. Who is he referring to by brothers? Disciples. These are, he said, but the brothers are saying, let's go so that, so that your disciples may see the works you're doing. So is, are they talking about the apostles? Because then it goes on and says that the brothers did not believe in him. So who are the brothers that he's well, referring to here? Well, we really don't know. Okay. No. Uh, they're using the words interchangeably. And unfortunately, throughout the, all of the Gospels, the writers use the word apostle and disciples interchangeably. And that's confusing. Yeah. Because they are not, as I've said before, all the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. So the brothers in this case aren't necessarily relatives. They're not necessarily the apostles. Right. They're just a group of his disciples. Well, that's right. Or they could be close neighbors. Uh, you know, who took a shine to this bright little Jewish boy that they've known since he was that high. Um, that would be true in that case as well. Yeah. We don't, we don't really know 
uh, about brothers in this case. We know that Mary and the church teaches that Mary never had any other children. And you've got to kind of accept that because it is part of our dogma. Not only doctrine, but dogma. Okay. Yeah. Yes, Rob. Okay. Any other questions? Did you get something out of this? It's so important that you take the idea of Holy Communion and the Eucharist seriously. Because that is the divine gift that God has given human life, humanity. All right. And as I said before, and do this the next time you go to communion. Take a look at the host and say, welcome, Jesus. Just don't pop it in your mouth and go back to your seat and forget about it. Because that is God himself coming to you in the form of bread and wine. Any other really important questions? <laughs> All right. Again, uh, when you go to communion, keep what we've talked about today in mind. And let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for so many graces and blessings that you have showered upon us. And therefore, help us to show our gratitude by our faith in you and how we reflect that to others. Also, we thank you for the time that you have given us and for giving us the Eucharist which causes us to sit back and think about what you have done for us. And it causes us really to recognize that you are within us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.